Welcome back to the Redneck Tech Podcast. This is going to be episode number 58. And on this episode, we're going to be with the one and only Mike Hunsucker from Heartland Bowhunter. Uh, I've known Michael for, um, I don't know, six, five, six years, um, ever since I've really been uh, in the, I guess, quote-unquote, outdoor industry. One of the best people you'll meet, one of the nicest guys in the world. Um, he's very um, helpful. He's one of those guys that is been a, in my opinion, a trendsetter for this industry. He has absolutely paved the way for how we view outdoor television. Him and, in my opinion, I say in the podcast, him and like one or two other um, brands or, or, or shows are really the you know the way we watch outdoor media today. They've kind of paved the way for that. Um, all you've got to do is look in the last ten years at how many people have tried to copy or rip off the Heartland Bowhunter style unsuccessfully. I might add. Um, and imitation is the best form of flattery, and that just shows you that the guys at Heartland are doing it right. They're still doing it right. They have an amazing team, and, uh, you know, Mike has been there, you know, pretty much since the beginning, and uh, it's his baby. It's his full-time job, and he does it very well. So, you know, me and him talk about some of the ins and outs of Heartland, you know, the inception of Heartland Bowhunter, some of the gear they're running, how they're running some gear, you know, kind of more the behind the scenes, the production side of things, because that's what we talk about here. So, hope you enjoy it. And now it's Michael Hunsucker. Right here, right here, right here, right here. Yeah. You want it? Yeah. Redneck Tech Podcast. This is episode number 58, and I have got the one and only Michael Hunsucker from Heartland Bowhunter on the line. What's going on, buddy? Hey, man. How are you? Oh, can't complain. It's uh, finally stopped raining in Georgia for the, you know, it's been raining solid for like three months, it seems like, which a lot of my other buddies in the Southeast are saying the same thing. How's the weather in Missouri? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That rain has been our snow, so. <laughs> oh, wow. So it's been a rough, been rough winter. Yeah, and at the worst possible time. I mean, we don't want, uh, I love this kind of weather. Talk about late December, early January, but once season closes, uh, it's like okay, I, I, I could do without it. Yeah, well, I hadn't hadn't done anything to mess your deer up yet, has it? Have you walked around yet and found any winter kills or anything yet? Have you? No, nothing too bad like that. I mean, the temperatures haven't been that brutal. Just a lot of snow, and fortunately, we have a lot of a lot of crops that we we leave standing. And uh, but even then, like I mean, our beans are pretty much picked through already. So. Uh, the deer are hungry. They're out, you know, the, the past few days we've been out doing some uh, timber sand improvement and just seeing the deer, you know, almost nonstop all day long, just, you know, trying to, trying to survive, trying to find food. Picked any sheds up yet? I actually haven't. I haven't picked a single shed up, which is incre- like incredibly hard to believe. Like we don't usually, we don't usually get into the shed hunting until, you know, early March or mid March yeah. anyways, because we like to kind of let them all drop and we get too crazy but um almost always i'll stumble across one while we're out in the field yeah, or we've, cameras had, or whatever. We've, had, we've had guys here in georgia picking them up already which is you know oh, his, that's unheard of historically you, yeah. still open <laughs> no season well i mean not no it's not still open but you know historically it's not till like mid-march like turkey season comes in usually that second third weekend of march and that's usually when you start finding them and usually they're holding them all the way up until the beginning of march and I had a friend of mine come over to the house the other day or last week, and he already had his biggest deer 
Now, luckily he's still alive and he picked up his shed and he searched and searched and searched for the other side and never found it. And I said, well, he might still be holding it. That's why you yeah, haven't found it. So yeah, it's, it's been a crazy weather, you know, late winter here and everywhere mm-hmm. else. Yeah, no doubt, man. But uh, anyway, I was uh, I did a Q&A thing on uh, the Redneck Tech uh, podcast social media a couple of days ago, and I had probably three people request um, talking to the Heartland Bowhunter crew. So I was like, well, I know I know Michael pretty well. I don't know Sean as well. I know him. You know, we know each other and we're friendly and everything, but I don't know him as well as I know you. So I figured you'd be a good one to get on and talk to. Um, Man, I'm popular. Three yeah, requests. Heck yeah, yeah, <laughs> for sure. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, I wanted to kind of kind of dive in, and I know you talked about this before on other podcasts, but I kind of wanted to start with, you know, how how Heartland Bowhunter got started. You know, how you and Sean know each other, how you know the rest of the guys on the crew, and you know, a quick quick and dirty, uh, you know, how the idea came about, and then how you kind of brought it to fruition in those early days. Yeah, I mean, the quick and dirty of it is Sean and I have known each other since um, middle school and high school and got together, started filming hunts in high school just for fun, messing around. And um, actually, our whole crew is basically just, you know, a group of friends and people that we've met through throughout the years. And uh, a lot of the guys that are with us today have been been with us since the beginning. So, um, But initially starting out, it was just a venture just, just for fun and um, really what, what sparked it into the, you know, got our foot in the door in the industry was we started manufacturing tree arms and, uh, oh, yeah, I ran, I so, ran one of the original the OG Heartland Bowhunter tree arms. I ran that's one right. of those. Yeah. yeah. So that was, I mean, it kind of, it kind of got sparked with, there was, there was really nobody making you know, manufacturing tree arms at the time. Now there's just so many options between, you know, fourth arrow and, um, I don't know if Muddy still makes theirs, but I mean, there's just literally third arm tree arm i mean there's like i can think of like five five different companies that make tree arms now so um at the time nobody really was making them and selling them people were you know working with small uh machine shops and having them you know make their own version kind of deal mm-hmm. and back then you know this was uh probably 12 13 14 years ago um you know everybody's running those big big dog cameras the heavy ones oh, so yeah. you need a substantial tree arm to support the camera so Long story short, us, and some of us still are running really big rigs like that too. And absolutely. I actually want to get into that in a minute because I've got a I've got a new a new piece of gear you might have to check out. Okay, awesome, awesome. So, uh, but anyway, yeah. Long story short, you know, the tree arm got our foot in the door. Um, we were focusing on you know capturing quality content to promote the tree arm, and accidentally created a concept for a TV show. <laughs> basically, yeah, accidentally, um, yeah, accidentally. So, you know, we just kind of we basically saw an opportunity. Um, at the time, there was not a lot of emphasis being put on the storylines, the production quality. Um, it was more or less, you know, focused on the kill and uh, montage of, of highlights. And, uh, you know, it didn't really do the hunting industry any favors. didn't really do bow hunting justice. And for us, you know, that's really all we do is bow hunt. It's, it's such a intimate, you know, sport that requires so much time and effort and dedication that we were like, man, like this story kind of needs to be told. And that's basically how the uh, spark was lit well the spark you know you, you you guys lit the spark and you know maybe accidentally stumbled up on a you know what you call heartland bow hunter today but you know it is arguable which i wouldn't even say arguably it is probably definitively the most um not necessarily copied but people try and imitate or mimic heartland bow hunter in every facet of this business you know you guys have I always tell people that there was two people, two 
organizations, in my opinion, that changed hunting from when I started watching it. Uh, you know, back in the early, you know, uh, TNN days, two things really shaped the way we watch outdoor television today, in my opinion. That was Bone Collector and you guys, Heartland Bowhunter. Um, Bone Collector came in with, you know, the extremely relatable personality, the comedy, the I want to be in hunting camp with that guy. And then you guys came in with storytelling, cinematography, and a way that really brought you into the tree stand, into the ground blind with you. Um, and those two concepts, those two ideas have been attempted, don't haven't been, have attempted to been recreated and, you know, repackaged and done in different ways. I mean, you, you're well aware of this a million different times. Nobody has, in my opinion, successfully done it yet. But, you know, you guys were trendsetters. You changed the way that people look, you know, watched outdoor television and perceived outdoor television. Well, thanks. Thanks, man. I appreciate you saying that. Um, and I, I definitely, you know, I agree. I definitely have seen the, the trends in the industry and, um, you know, what happened with, you know, Waddell and, and road trips. And then, you know, one one thing you did leave out was, you know, the Lee and Tiffany husband-wife phenomenon. Oh, yeah. Well, um, too, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it just it's just, it's funny, you know, you, you see these newer concepts come on and, and, and have success. And then here comes everybody following right on their right, right behind them. And or trying, um, trying to follow. Yeah. I, trying to. I, yeah. Yeah. Especially. Yeah. Well, and, and like you said in the beginning, you, you know, you guys saw a need for storytelling and not just a, a montage and a kill, you know, I still sure. think, I still think the majority of it is that because sure. you know, yeah. the reason yeah. it is, is because that's easy. Um, yeah. you know, telling a good story and being cinematic and being creative the entire time, show in and show out, that takes time, it takes work, it takes money, it takes effort. And that's still Absolutely. still why the there are so many T V shows that are lacking and why T V, in my opinion, which you know this, T V in general is struggling hard right now. Um outdoor T V is anyway. Yeah, and that's you know, I that's something that I always tell people when I'm you know, when talking to them about, you know, how do you get, how do you get started? How do I, you know, how do I get in the industry? How do I, you know, I want to do what you guys are doing kind of deal. And I just tell them the number one thing is to have something unique oh, yeah. um, to, to have a, have a, a unique concept or idea because everything's been tried. Everything's been done. Oh, and yeah. you know, it's, it's a passion industry. So there's just people that are so strongly passionate about it that they're willing to do it for, for nothing. And so um, there's just a lot of, a lot of competition in the industry. So, everything's been tried and tried and done. And so it's up to you to kind of think outside the box and think, okay, what can I do differently that hasn't been done yet that, uh, maybe perceived well and then, and taken, you know, may, may have a chance at success. So yeah, for sure. Well that, that, you know, I think it's a really good mix of, I think, you know, there's obviously really successful shows, you know, the top 10%, they're going to have some sort of secret sauce, whether that's uh production, whether that's a really over the top personality, like a Waddell, or, or, you know, or a pig man or something like that, or they're going to have to have incredible storytelling, incredible cinematography, and you know how hard that is and how much it costs and how much time it takes. So if you don't have that secret sauce, if you're just another, if I've heard it once, I've heard it a thousand times, I'm just a regular guy that's going to, you know, I want to show people that a regular guy can go get it done still. You know, if, yeah. I, if I've heard that once, man, I've heard it a thousand times. You know, mm -hmm. that's, that's not new. That's not creative. That's not... Um, nobody wants to see that again that's been done and beat to death you know you've got to do something truly different or you have to be truly different as a character uh and you have to be perceived well and have good production and all and have you know you know either really good sponsors or a lot of money up front to get it going yeah absolutely
Well, uh, to go back to before I forget, so you guys created the, which essentially, did did you guys, because they're so similar, the Boss Hog base at Muddy and you guys base, was that uh, a deal between you guys and Muddy? How did that happen? Yeah, yeah. So we uh, we partnered with Muddy. Um, we Larry Kendall, who started Muddy, was a good friend of ours, and we partnered with them once we kind of realized, okay, like our, our focus is shifting from the tree arms to, you know, our brand. And the market for high-end, you know, big, bulky tree arms is very small. So we partnered with Muddy. Um, they manufactured the Boss Hog, which is essentially uh, the same arm as, as the, uh, the Sniper Pro. And then they also, um, you know, used that design to come out with a couple smaller, um, mm-hmm. you know, more more marketable and more, you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, smaller versions that will work with smaller cameras and they still reach a, reach a bigger market. They still make the smaller ones. They do not even make the Boss Hog anymore just because of how small the need yeah. was for it. So um, yep. I still have one of the original Boss Hogs, and because it's it's the only thing that would hold my rig up that wouldn't mm-hmm. you know that would support it. Uh, you know, I run a big you know a big camera, and I know you guys run y'all run double cameras most of the time, which we're going to get into that in a minute. But um, you know. I found a base and I haven't gotten to test it out yet, but first, you know, it's, it's the guy's name's out on a limb manufacturing. He's out of Oklahoma and he's created a base that will work with the muddy, um, the muddy arm that has a bowl adapters for my head. And, oh, okay. uh, and he said it will hold all the weight that I need. I have to, I have to drill out the bushing just a little bit to make the, to make the arm fit in, but it is a third the size and at least a third the weight. Um, and it's got one little lever. It can fit on trees that are not, they don't have to be, you know, nice straight up and down trees. They can be, I mean, I mean, literally 90 degree limbs. You can put them on anything. Um, I found them at NWTF and the, 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 I think the base was like 50 or 60 bucks. And I'm like, dude, if it's that much, I was like, give me that. I'm going to try it. I haven't got it in a tree yet, but just initial looking at it. I mean, it, dude, it's a game changer. It's going to cut my pack size in half. So yeah, that's cool. I'm I, actually I'm familiar with the uh, I'm familiar with the brand because they make the uh, that really big, they make the overhead yeah the uh, overhead and he tried to sell me on that and I was like dude I'm not toting that with me to the tree stand that I mean yeah it, I don't know you know from a practicality standpoint I don't know how practical but it is it's a cool idea you know no, it's a cool uh, idea and, and nothing in between you and the tree kind it's of deal, the but. same guy and from what I know and what I've heard and I might actually try and get him on the podcast but um, he's like a serial inventor. And he's yeah. you know invented a bunch of stuff, and this this idea I'll send you a picture of it once we get off the phone, dude. It's it is legit. Uh, it's a, it's That's one cool. of those things. Is like why didn't I think of that type deal? Yeah. So I've seen some of their tree stands too that they kind of will mount any tree and go in any yep. direction and stuff. And yeah, it's kind of that same. It's idea. definitely you know you know you're not gonna it's not an everyday use but deal, but it'll uh, it's definitely something pretty cool. So for sure, we've actually been using the uh, we've actually been using fourth arrow tree arms. Um, quite a bit uh, for the most part, and uh, you know they have the, the ball adapter base, which is kind of cool, and um, have the ability to buy just the bracket that straps to the tree, mm-hmm. um, and so you can take the ball adapter off. So like that was always a thing with us. Like man, you know how it is. Like putting up a tree arm every time, it's like okay, you got to put the tree arm off. It's heavy. You got to ratchet the base of the tree. Yeah. And so you know having that ability to leave like those more inexpensive. Um, bases in the tree and then you just slide the ball adapter in mm-hmm. um, that's a pretty pretty cool concept so it's cool to see uh, innovation in in the tree arm industry uh, that we were once a once a part of yeah it is cool and it's just crazy just how technology in general has changed you know across the hunting space it's almost gotten to where which I've heard 
other podcasts, which we're not going to get into this because it's a whole other conversation. But like, when do you when do you not consider it fair chase anymore with all the technology that we have between yeah you know like Ozonics and you know the breadcrumb you know Bluetooth tracking things, the Onyx maps, the you know all the things that we have at our fingertips that ten years ago did not exist. Um, yeah, you know when does when do you where do you draw the line and whether or not it's fair chase? But anyway. Um, we're shooting the we're shooting the new Garmin Zero site, so that conversation comes up oh, comes yeah. up quite a bit. And oh so, yeah, I haven't. Messed I can with tell that. you this. I can tell you this. I, I don't know that all the technology and all the advancements. Like, I don't know that I'm necessarily you know killing any more deer or or, or turkey or whatever than I did back then. So, um, you know, maybe some of the quality maybe maybe a little better, but that's a uh, you know as a result of a lot of other things. I don't know the technology. I mean, it's definitely you know helps makes you more efficient, makes you more accurate, but um, it's, uh, it's still a very, very challenging. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no doubt. We'll kind of get, especially when it comes to filming too. You know, oh filming gosh. And yeah. Running and Add it, yeah. a whole other element. No doubt. At, you know, I tell people, which I've had filming work for me and against me, you know, when I've been on hunts filming for people, I've had, you know, if I wouldn't have been there, we wouldn't have killed something. And then I've had it other times that I'm aware of. And probably a lot of times that I'm not aware of just because of that second person, you don't get something down. So it's, you know, it's, it, it, it's a, it's definitely a disadvantage and it, it can't, it has been an advantage too. So it's like, you know, where do you, you know, what do you equate it to? I, I really don't know. But yeah, uh, how many times, uh, how many times you think that you've, you've spooked deer without even knowing it just from having twice the amount of movement, twice oh, the sure. amount of scent, twice the amount of noise up in the tree. There's no telling. There's no telling. Yeah. No um, telling. Well, uh, kind of got getting back to the, you know, the early days of, uh, Heartland Bowhunter, you know, it was pretty much you and Sean in the beginning. Um, so what was, how have your, your roles, cause I know, you know, you guys have obviously grown and you've evolved. What, well, you know, what is, what were your roles then and kind of what have they evolved to now in the company and with the show? So yeah, HP has always been kind of a team concept and we've always kind of hunted in, in teams essentially. Um, and, uh, so Sean and I primarily would hunt and film together, uh, from exclusively. So, um, we would go on, you know, different hunts trips together and we're hunting you know at home in missouri we just trade off or whatever which is which is something that uh, i think is unique in itself i mean um those we, we talk to a lot of guys all the time who are like okay like i'm interested in filming hunts i want to get out and do that and uh, i gotta find somebody who's willing to give up half of their season basically yeah. oh gosh to man. trade off with me that's and a whole so, other podcast in that too because I've, exactly. I've been down that road with 15 20 people over the years and it's just it to find that person that yeah, is willing it, it, that is willing to do it as hard as you're willing to do it is is very very hard sure yeah you know it takes yeah it takes the right person the right people and so um you know Skyler and Clayton um are, are kind of a, are another team of ours they kind of, they kind of hunt together film together and they've been doing that since Clayton's been around since the very beginning Skyler came on board shortly after um and, and they've been hunting together ever since and so it's he it's, killed a, he killed a little bitty eight point this year. That's, that's right. Yeah, yeah, he did. He did. It's the uh, stupidest you know, it's the stupidest looking deer I've ever seen. Yeah, looks like a cartoon. <laughs> oh, it does. It doesn't look real. Um, and so that you know that honestly could have easily been Clayton behind the yeah. bow and, and Skyler behind the camera. You know, they, they're really they're both really you know really uh, selfless guys. That you know, it's a team. It's a team effort. They they put in the work together. They hunt and film together, and and so that's kind of primarily what we were founded on um, initially was kind of, you know, the team-based concept. And while we still are, you know, heavily relying on that, like Sean and I, the demand for content, as you know, is, is, is increasing and increasing oh, yeah. over the years. And so 
um, since then, Sean and I have kind of uh, divided and conquered, so to speak. And so we each have a couple guys that film for us uh, pretty much full time. And, and uh, so we kind of are able to kind of split up, not to mention we uh, we're getting older, starting our own families, having kids, that type of stuff. So that, that changes a little bit of the, oh, the yeah. free time and the availability. Changes everything, <laughs> man. That's what I tell guys. I was like, man, wait till you have kids. You think life's going fast right now and things are hard to do. Wait till you add kids to the mix. Yep. No doubt. We had a lot more free time when we were in college. <laughs> oh, gosh. you dang right, man. Well, uh, how does, you know, now that it's changed and the roles have, you know, and, and you guys have grown, um, how do you kind of work with guys on making sure you keep production value up? You know, because it's easy, and, and what I've seen with a lot of guys, and especially when you have groups of guys that hunt together, there's always one, maybe two guys that are that are really good at the camera side that end up getting stuck there. How do you kind of make it to where everybody is on the same page um, cinematically and, you know, with their gear, um, with technology? You know, what's the, you know, what are some of the challenges there? You know, do you, I know you guys have done camera classes before, but like, is that something that each individual came into this, you know, with those skill sets or is that something that learned over the years? You know, kind of how did that develop? Uh, yeah, so pretty much every, all of us are kind of like self-taught to, to, so to speak, and nobody has any like really formal training. We do, like you said, an annual kind of team meeting, camera school get together. And, um, but really we've kind of got to the, the core group of guys that we have based on a process of elimination. And, um, you know, we get, of course, all the time people saying, Hey, like, how do I become a part of the HP pro staff? Or how do I be, you know, get, I want to be, you know, we're home with you guys, be on the show, whatever. And, you know, the, the, the number one requirement was always, you know, can you run a camera? And so that was kind of the, 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 the first test. So anybody that we've brought on board, um, which we haven't done in years, but that, that was a newer face. It was kind of like, okay, like prove yourself behind the camera first. And, uh, you know, then you'll be able to spend some time in front of it second. And so, um, through that process of elimination, we've weeded out, you know, guys that, that aren't in it for the right reasons. And, um, you know, just, you, like I said, you got to be in it for the right reason. It's really cool to be a part of something, you know, a, a big, you know, brand or show. And, you know, that, that initial, we call the honeymoon phase is all exciting and everything's glamorous. And, and, uh, you know, but when it, after a couple of years of that, when the newness wears off and it becomes work, that's when, um, you know, you kind of, you kind of see the guys that are in them for the right reasons and the ones that aren't. So. Oh yeah. Because it, it, it is work to do it, yeah, absolutely. To, to do it to the scale that you guys are doing it, putting out the amount of content what, between video, photographies, web shows, TV shows, um, you know, content for sponsors, exclusive content, uh, what you know, whatever it may be. When you're doing it to the level that you're doing it, at, you know, and I know which I can probably speak for you because I'm speaking for myself to where there's nothing I would rather do than what I'm doing. But at the same time, it is absolutely a full-time job. It's, you know, it's... Um, there's never going to be a perfect day. There's never going to be a perfect situation. There's always going to be sponsors needing this and that. And there's always going to be time constraints. There's always going to be deadlines. There's always going to be production guidelines there. It is absolutely work. And that was, you know, some of the guys that I've filmed with over the years, they last, you know, they last through that month or two of that honeymoon phase, just like you're saying, and the, about that 10th or 15th morning they're getting up to go and run a camera they're like man i don't i don't know about all this you know i, I want to go hunting this morning okay i don't know what you're talking about i, I hunt for a living yeah exactly exactly <laughs> that's what i oh, hear from everybody my, my oh. mother i've been doing this for you know almost nine years and my mother still thinks that's all i do is yeah. it's all i do is hunt i say like, well you just got back from a hunting trip i was like 
mom, I was gone for 10 days in Wyoming or, you know, Montana, hiking up and down a mountain, carrying a camera. I was hunting, but not like you think I was hunting. (laughs) I was like, you know, and it's hard to explain. I swear I'm just going to take my wife and my mother on a trip one day and like make them carry things. That is, that is a, no, that's a really good point. Um, so like Nate, one of our guys that, uh, one of my you know best friends from, since we were kids, uh, is a part of our, our team and we hunt with him and he's got a lodge up in North Dakota and, uh, they, they primarily do waterfowl hunts. And, um, we came up there years ago when we were first getting started out to do a hunt up there and his mom kind of helps run the kitchen and the cooking side of things. And she was like, I'll never forget her saying like, this is so cool. Like seeing this all behind the scenes and like she's like it's so cool like seeing you guys with all your equipment and how you operate and how you work and she's like this is just it just needs it's, it's a perspective that a lot of people don't realize yeah you know see all the hard hard work behind it and, oh yeah well uh, you know same thing with my wife and anybody else or you know my my parents or anybody who's been on a trip and kind of seen like oh wow okay like this is crazy how much goes into it well when you explain but, to yeah. when you explain to somebody a whitetail hunt you know, uh, you know, name name a deer that you killed this year, and you probably hunted that deer. Sometimes you get lucky, and you only have to hunt a deer. You know, sometimes one sit. Most of the time, it's weeks. You know, let's just say for the sake of argument, you hunt a deer for seven days. You know, you go to an outfitter, you hunt for seven days, you finally kill a deer. All right, now you've got you've filmed the whole week. You've not only had a producer with you the whole week. You know, that's a, a salary or a day rate that you're having to pay. Then you bring that footage back. You put it on a hard drive, and now an editor has to look at it and, and cut it for generally, you know, around two weeks. So there's three weeks of time, money, and effort put into 22 and a half minutes of content. Mm-hmm. That, and that's best case scenario. And that's best case scenario. And nobody understands that they they watch it for that three minutes or two minutes of that kill shot and recovery to see you hold that deer and talk about it and whatever else, but they don't realize you know, thousands of dollars, three weeks of time between, you know, sometimes three, four, five people went into that. Um, but, but Absolutely. that's all you do is hunt for a living. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's no, yeah. I mean, people, people never mean it that way. Like in a, in a bad thing, but it's yeah. like, man, you got a dream job. You just hunt for a living. And I'm like, and I do, and no, we do, actually, and we do have dream jobs. I'm not going to, I'm not even going to, exactly. dis- I'm never going to dispute that. Sure. But at the same time, it's, you know, it's it's been said to me where somebody says you know well you only hunt for a living and they're they're being facetious but at the same time they do not understand. Yep. But it but yep. at the I, I always tell people I have a job that I, I say I, I don't uh, I don't hunt for a living I I run a business for a living and 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 that business allows me the opportunity to spend a lot of time in the field hunting. <laughs> exactly exactly that is a great way of saying it. Actually the best way I've ever heard it said was you're not filming hunts you're filming a television show that happens to be about hunting. Yeah, exactly. So, and, and, and you look at, you know, watch the behind the scenes of making a television show. It's friggin' work, man. Mm-hmm. No doubt. But anyway, you know, you guys are mainly whitetails, you know, whitetails, probably you guys first love being from Missouri. Um, but other than whitetails, I, I think I know the answer to this, but what's your favorite thing to tell a story about? Oh man. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I love hunting out west, too. So, like, we you know, we kind of started hunting out west um, just because, okay, like, there's, you know, earlier seasons, more opportunity, that type of stuff. And so, uh, you know, I don't know, man. Elk hunting is fun, but I just don't get to do it as often mm-hmm. as I do mule deer hunting. So, like, going on a spot stock mule deer hunt, there's so many opportunities to do that, um, so many places to do that. It's And it's, a, it's an adrenaline rush that's kind of hard to describe. And yeah. so... 
Um, that's something you know, I've it's, not it's done. It's all fun, but that's something I've oh. not done yet. So that's yeah. that's on the list. You got to man, you got to. It's it, it's just for me, anyways. It was just so much different. Like, uh, I mean, whitetail. You know, cut my teeth on whitetail, and um, uh, you know, I have no problem like remaining calm, keeping my cool when I have a big buck coming in into bow range. You know, it just here he comes. You kind of you know watch his behavior, kind of you know try to study what he's doing to base off base your decision on when you're going to draw, when you're going to stop and when you're going to shoot. But you know, you, st- you stop a whitetail, you, you, you pick a spot and you check all the boxes and release the arrow with a mule deer. <laughs> oh man, everything goes awry. It's <laughs> like you're in, you know, you, just the stock part is obviously physically demanding typically. And to get within bow range without them having a clue is just such a rush. And like, you're there you know he's there and not a clue in the world that you're there and just oh man your heart goes through the roof and then when it comes to making the shot and executing the shot i mean it's a split second decision you usually have a couple seconds uh on whether or not to, to pull the trigger or when you know when or how to do it and so just that rush like my heart's going crazy before i've released the arrow as opposed to whitetail it's like the opposite like once i release the arrow then i'm like then that rush hits me but yeah uh so anyway, so yeah, I mean, I, I love, I do love spot stalking with your hunting for sure. Well, uh, kind of going back to, to whitetails and, you know, cutting your teeth on that, you know, whitetail hunts, you know, on outdoor television, I've, you know, there's how many whitetail hunts have been on outdoor television. There's no telling, yeah. you know, yeah. tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands. So my question is, how do you keep it entertaining and creative when, everything's been done, you know, essentially, you know, what do you guys do to tell that story to keep whitetail hunts creative and, you know, intriguing? Well, what's, what's cool to me about whitetails is they, they, and it's the same as true for mule deer, but like the whitetails, you know, they, they thrive in so many different environments. And so we, you know, as, as hunters, you know, we, we, we get to hunt a lot and spend a lot of time in the field and, and, you know, we love new experiences. And so doing new experiences, different areas, hunting, you know, deer where we possibly, you know, had never done before is, is something that, that is uh, an easy way for us to kind of tell, tell a unique story. Um, because we know we haven't done it that way before. Um, but you know, also on the management side of things, I, I know that like, as we've gotten more serious into the whitetail hunting and, and, and been afforded more time to spend, you know, managing our properties, like definitely the, the stories that we build with deer individually and watching them, you know, watching them grow from, from two to three to four and five years old, um, it, it is super rewarding. And it's, it's kind of one of those deals where we, we kind of, um, you know, go, we, 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 it's hard for, um, to, for us to, to get too deep into that side of things because, you know, HP was kind of founded on, you know, you know, just the regular guys, regular hunters. And we were, you know, we're hunting properties. We have permission on properties that, um, you know, maybe we, 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 maybe we leased or had or public ground or whatever and just kind of you know shooting deer and so we want to be relatable number one that's the main thing is we want, we've always wanted to be relatable and so the management side of things isn't necessarily relatable for everybody but um, it always does make for an intriguing interesting story so the main thing is you know we try to keep a good variety across the board and and um, you know every deer is different every story behind the the quest for the deer is a little bit different and so that's kind of what we rely on when it comes to, um, you know, not getting stale on that side of things, so to speak. I got you. What are some things you do as far as setup wise goes? You know, I know, and I've talked, I've talked it up about a million times about Garmin verbs, 
Um, I'm a huge Garmin fan. Um, as far as, you know, POV cameras, I think GoPros, I think they've gotten better. Um, but I, you know, up until this point, uh, GoPros have been complete and utter junk from all the ones that I've ever used as far mm-hmm. as like charging, holding charge, corrupting batteries, um, coming on, staying on, you know, actually doing what they're supposed to do when, I'll, I'll, you know, every garment I've ever worked with actually works well. So kind of what are some things other than running the verbs and the tree as another angle, what are some things like your setup wise, you know, I, I think I've seen, you know, some behind the scenes or like second angle things where, um, you guys are almost running dual cameras. You've got, from what I think you're running a DSLR, you know, with, you know, some sort of short lens, and then you've got your big camera long lens and you're generally running high speed on that. Correct. Yeah. So we, we've kind of, um, throughout the years, our cameras setups are always changing, but, um, primarily right now, yeah, we, we like to run two different cameras, um, in the tree and, and sometimes we'll run, we've, we've done a, ran a dual rig, like on the actual tree arm. Um, most recently though, we've kind of gotten away from that to where we will kind of run two tree arms. So we'll run a smaller, uh, fourth arrow, like Rex arm, which is a real stubby short arm with the DSLR on it. Um, it allows you to kind of maneuver it around the tree and get it on the hunter. So you're capturing everything in the moment. Um, and then we'll run the big camera on the, uh, on the big arm. And so, um, we've primarily since, um, I mean, since the beginning, really, we've, we've been using Canon DSLRs and Canon glass. My and man, my man. We, yeah, we actually, I, I take that back. The very first DSLR that shot video ever was a Nikon D90. And we had a couple of Nikon D90s and, and, uh, Canon was second to the second to the party in the DSLR video world, but just completely smashed Nikon. And so, uh, we switched from Canon to Nikon at that point. You mean Nikon to Canon? Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, Nikon to Canon yeah. at that point, and then and haven't looked back since. So uh, we've been running. You know, once you invest all that money in the glass and and uh, all that, you know, uh, we're pretty pretty well tied to tied to Canon. And now, in, in a time when you know there's um, you know lots of options out there, a lot of companies, you know, a lot of I, I would say Canon are less feature rich than some of the others like the sony the panasonics you know they're they have to to compete with canon they have to kind of cram some more um you know more features and that type of stuff into those cameras so you can definitely get more features for your money with with some of the other cameras but for for me man just the look and the profile and especially on the photography side of things it's hard to beat the hard to beat the 5d mark IV. then it goes back to me not only the features you know i'm I'm not so much sold on the features because i'm going to be running a big camera anyway too but it's one of those things to where the ergonomics of the camera is better for me. I have a big Absolutely. I have a big hand. The Sony's are so small, which I've talked about this on the podcast about a dozen times. But I bought a Sony just because I wanted to see what all the rave was about. And don't take anything away from it. It was a great camera. But I also bought the Mark IV and I sold my Sony. So I'm still, you know, I'm repping the Mark IV myself because I had a 5D Mark II for, I still have it. I'll never get rid of that camera unless it just craps, you know, kicks the bucket on me. Yeah. But, um, you know, I... I love those cameras. I'm a Canon glass guy myself. So kind of along the same lines, you know, and they're, they're virtually bulletproof, man. Yeah, they're great. They're great. They're great cameras. And even if you do mess them up, like, you know, leave them out for a time lapse in the Bay of Alaska when the tide comes up Mm -hmm. and swallows it or Mm -hmm. (laughs) drop it off the mountain in Utah, uh, the repairs, (laughs) the repairs are pretty, uh, they're pretty, seem to be pretty realistic. You know, you send it in for repairs. I've never been... I've never got a bill back from Canon and been like, oh my gosh, they're gouging me on this one. It's yeah. always like, oh wow, that's it. That's all it was. Sony yeah. will though. Sony will get your butt, yeah, they, man. Yeah. Oh yeah. 
Sony so we, and DJI. DJI will get you every time. Yeah. Too. Yeah, I've kind of heard both on DJI. Like I've heard like you know they've been really you know lenient now on stuff and like okay yes yeah, and then we'll take care of it and then other times like they're like okay here's the bill. And it's like, well, maybe oh, that's could have bought a new drone. Maybe that's because some of my crashers have been pretty catastrophic. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. They're not just fixing uh, propellers and, you know, single motors. They're like, okay, here's a box of pieces. Put this back together. <laughs> yeah. So what's kind of interestingly enough is, you know, I talk about Canon and gla- Canon glass DSLRs. We've always been kind of definitely on that, on that side of things. But from a video camera standpoint, we've almost always ran Sony's. And so, um, you know, we, we, we did have a Canon, um, XHA one maybe, or whatever they're called. And, uh, but, I'd say over the past six, seven years, we've primarily been running Sony's. We had the the Sony EX1. Um, I want to say Skyler had a was running the AX2000 um, back in the day, and then um, more recently, we primarily are filming everything on um, either the uh, Sony FS7 or um, the Red. So it's like either um, you know the the Sony the Sony FS7 has, has been a great camera. I know a lot of people in the industry. Industry use it and the FS5 and then the uh, yeah the FS5 is the smaller version right it's mm-hmm. like the, yep. yeah and so uh, those cameras have been pretty pretty great cameras and so it's funny how you know we we've always been the Canon DSLR side of things but always have run almost always run the Sony yeah I'm the video same, cameras I'm the exact same way I've always been a, a Canon DSLR Sony big camera that's how what I yeah you know at sub seven we ran the FS7 and the F5 and mm-hmm. then now I'm running the FS7 and the 5D Mark IV so yeah same that's, thing. That's why I always get confused because they have the F five yeah, and F5, they have the FS five, yeah. yeah, and they have the so. F and they have the F fifty five. So it's like you know, it's like y'all need to do a better job of naming your cameras. <laughs> you get differentiate a little, easier, yeah. a little better. Well, what do you think? Um, what do you think's been the hardest learning curve? You know, in the outdoor industry, you know, is it trying to keep up with technology? You know, has it been, um, you know, competition in the outdoor space? You know, what do you think's been the you know the hardest thing? As the years have been going, because y'all been doing this what eleven years now? Twelve, uh, twelve, 12 years. Well, 12 we years have, now. we've our twelfth season will air this year, so we're producing our thirteenth right now. So. Okay, so in the last twelve and a half ish years, what do you think's been the hardest learning curve? I mean, that's that's tough. I mean, the the obviously the most difficult part was you know getting a name out there for yourself and and, and you know finding that void that needed to be filled. But mm-hmm. once once that happened, man, things just blew up and accelerated quickly. Um, I I would say since then the most difficult thing for, for us and for all producers, it, you know, has been the, um, the, the demand for content mm-hmm. and, oh, yeah. you know, it's just the, the, the way people consume content is changing, you know, more rapidly than we can keep up with right now. And there's really no standout above all the other, about, above all others. And so what Heartland Bowhunter used to be a TV show and, um, you know, mo- most people know how t- the TV show works in the, in the outdoor industry. I mean, it's, it's a time buy model. So, um, you know, we buy the airtime, we sell advertising to, to partners and, um, you know, our business used to be a TV show it used to revolve around, you know, creating our TV show. And now it's since gotten so much more complicated. It's, you know, we produce the TV show. We also produce 20 webisodes a year. We also run social media accounts for all those those uh those different uh opportunities and each one of those has you know content that's kind of specific to it and so it's gotten much much more complex well, that, and, and you produce really and you produce you produce other television shows too you know like, like the Lindsay way 
Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So we, we own and produce, um, another show called Heartland Waterfowl that was kind oh, yeah. of, an Heart- of our brand and Heartland Waterfowl. Yep. And that was kind of our first, you know, venture in growing the Heartland brand. And then, um, yeah, then we, then we started producing, uh, the Lindsay way for Jeff and David. And so that's a whole another side of things on the, on the production business. But, um, you know, we, we've always, you know, continue to try to grow the business and, 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 you know, do more, but, um, you know, the, the demand for content has been, has been pretty overwhelming. And, um, you know, we've, we've had to diversify our, ourselves and, and, uh, equip ourselves with the right people and the right, you know, the right equipment to be able to kind of crank everything out that we need to. Yeah. And I don't see, and, and I don't see the demand for content going down anytime soon. Um, no, you know, no, absolutely not. Um, and, yeah, and, and all it does is make it harder on us to what, what you know when Facebook and Instagram and those and YouTube start doing their policy changes, which I've talked about this too. You know, it's making it harder for guys that dabble in the um, in right wing type you know activities. You know, especially mm-hmm. especially if I'd hate to be in the gun world right now, or you know in a you know a, a gun hunting only type show because those you know that type of content is being really whether it's censored whether it's you know what you know whatever the case may be it's making it harder and harder to get your message out so and it's just going to start bleeding over to what we're doing just because you know you know anti-hunters are screaming louder and you know you know there's not near as many of them but they're screaming louder than we are so obviously you know that they're going to incite change because they're hollering louder than we are yeah and that's you know that's really on all of us at the hunting community to Mm -hmm you know, kind of, um, think about what kind of content you're putting out there and what kind of message you're sending to people that may not be in the hunting space. You know, what, what, um, you know, what, what may seem normal or tasteful to, you know, an an avid hunter may not be the best way to represent the sport and the industry. And so, you know, it's kind of up to us to, to kind of, you know, control what, what messages we put out there, especially at a time like right now when I feel like there's a lot of people looking from the outside looking in and, you know, we have a lot of people that, you know, maybe, um, you know, looking to be, you know, more organic, non-GMO, like they care now people care more about whether people can't, their food comes from than ever before. And so, um, you know, for, for, uh, that attention to be put on us now is an important time for us to make sure we kind of portray that message properly to the, to the non-hunters it's a big responsibility that i don't think i don't think enough people take seriously uh it's a it's a it's something to where um if we don't carry the torch and shine a light the way that it needs to be shown then that you know it it falls on us um so it's it's a big responsibility for sure um what where is somewhere that you guys or you personally probably a better question just for you personally where do you look you know for inspiration for um you know new ideas new uh techniques you know what's some of your avenues to try and you know find that inspiration yeah that's a great point i mean we talked i talked about it earlier about you know a lot of the intimidate or the uh intimidation not intimidation uh what, what's the word Im- imita- imitation In- imitation imitation inside. there you go <laughs> imitation inside of the hunting industry is it's kind of unfortunate like if, if you're you know, want to start a new show or, or, uh, you well, know, want to start but, doing, but films. imitation, imitation is the best, is the greatest form of flattery as well. So sure, sure. No, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not bashing or saying anything bad about it, but what I'm saying is like, it goes back to you, like having a unique idea, unique concept. Yeah. Um, like if, if, if you're wanting to do something in the hunting industry, like the last place 
that I would suggest looking would be inside the hunting, inside, hunting industry. Yeah, exactly. You know, something that's already been done. And that's, we've always looked outside of the hunting industry. I mean, the hunting industry is a small, you know, small budget, small, tight knit, you know, industry. And, um, you know, we've always, always looked outside of the industry for inspiration and, um, you know, industries that have lots of money that are pouring big money into productions. And that's kind of been our, our deal is always trying to mimic those high end big productions with a shoestring budget. So, oh yeah, <laughs> that's kind of, that's kind of how it always has been. And so we were fortunate enough to, you know, starting out when, um, in the early days, you know, before we had really made a name for ourselves at all, it was just trying to, um, do the best we could with what we had. And, um, it's funny because, you know, we talk about like camera toys and, and all these different, you know, like jibs, sliders, um, uh, you know, drones and, and, uh, you know, uh, Ronins and all this type of stuff. Like yep. none of this stuff was possible back then. No. And especially before the advent of DSLRs. Oh you know, my gosh. Yeah. Cameras were huge. And so that's been a, been a crazy big, big change in, in technology is just the ability to film, you know, high quality, full, you know, full HD, now 4K content on a, on a small camera that can be, um, you know, smaller the camera, smaller the equipment it takes to, to achieve that stu- type of stuff. So I'll never forget like back in the day when we were, when we like literally first, first year getting started, Sean created or made this, looked up online and, and found these plans to make a, a camera dolly with literally a big piece of uh, plywood and some angle iron and some skateboard wheels and some PVC pipe. And so this, this, this big track dolly would, you know, the, the skateboard wheels would slide on the pipe and this piece of plywood you put your tripod on. And like, that was, that was how we achieved these, these moving and motion added shots in the, in the initial stages of, of uh, HB. And like, and like now I think to like a, a tiny little slider in a DSLR that you can literally slap on your backpack and get it and, you know, go around and get anywhere you want. Like it's gotten so much easier and so much more convenient. Oh yeah. All the, all the toys. Well that, and all you got to do is, you know, and it's been funny to me to watch it over the last 10 years of watching outdoor television and being a part of it is watching trends of, you know, how trends at the beginning were, okay. Uh, you know, if you don't know how, to, you know, the only good shows, only the good shows know how to do time lapses. And then the next <laughs> yeah. year is only the good shows have a drone. Then the next year it's only the good shows have high speed. And then the next year, it's only the good shows. Now they can do motion control time lapses. And then it's like, what's that next, you know, what's that next step that says, okay, you know, we know what we're doing. You know, there's all, you know, there's a trend. Like if you can't do this, then you're not considered, you know, a, a, a top percentage show or whatever. And yeah. I always thought that was, that was so funny because you can just watch those trends from year to year. It's like, well, man, so-and-so, you know, they've got this camera that's doing this now. Or did you see what so-and-so put on their, on their show open? You know, they had some crazy graphic or something, you know, and it, whatever it was. And it was just like this, you know, every year we're trying to one-up one another and one-up one another, one-up one another. And, you know, and a lot of times, you know, especially when I was, uh, you know, doing more TV, which I haven't, I haven't edited or shot a television show in uh almost two years now you know i did you know tv for five years at sub seven you know that's what i did is i would watch y'all's open every year and be like okay what did they do this year you know okay what you know what are we gonna have to what are we gonna have to compete with now um and i remember when you guys um transitioned from sportsman's channel to outdoor channel and at the time outdoor channel didn't have as many hd homes as sportsman's channel did you know, Outdoor Channel was still airing in a lot of places, still in like, I don't even remember, it wasn't even HD. 
um, and Sportsman's Channel was airing in more places than HD. And, and I remember, y'all, and this was like what five or six years ago. Yeah, I think so. Six, yeah, six, seven like, years ago, probably. Man, yeah. I, I, I thought to myself, I'm like, oh, I don't know. I don't want them to do that because I'm not going to be able to, because y'all's time lapses aren't going to look the same in standard definition as they do in high <laughs> definition. I was like, I don't know how this is going to be a good look for them. But, I, you know, fi- finally Outdoor Channel got their act together and, and got more HD homes. But I just remember, you know, I just, I remember watching you guys every year and be like, okay, what are they going to do this year? You know, what, you know, okay. All right, they did this. How the heck did they do that? <laughs> you know, when you, you guys did the um, uh, what is it called? Uh, those those long uh, hyperlapses. Y'all started doing the hyperlapses, hyperlapses. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, all right, now they're doing hyperlapses. How are we going to do the hyperlapse? You know, so that that was just really cool to me to see. You know how you guys um, and some others, but especially you guys, would set that bar every year. Yeah, that's funny. Like when we got started out. You know, the idea was, okay, how can we be different? What, what can we do differently? And, like, I'll never forget, like, people had, like, people's intro to their show was, like, a graphics package. That was industry standard. Oh, like, my gosh. Oh, you have a TV show? Okay, and we would a graphics and, package. And I know some of the money we paid for some of those graphics packages because yeah. I know how much we paid Triple Horse and some other people to edit some of those for some of our clients. Holy crap, the amount of money they spent on those. Yeah. And so because of that, that's the exact reason why people would continue to use the same intro year after year for yep. three, four, five years. Oh, yeah. And so, like, I saw that, like, as a trend, and we're like, okay, you know, what can, how can we be different? Let's, let's you know, every every season is, is its own story in itself, so mm-hmm. let's have a unique intro for every every uh, season of the show. And so that's, that's where that all got started. And so we've kind of always looked at that as, like, you know, our, our show is, 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 like, pretty raw, pretty – um, you know, pretty real and pretty raw, and it's not it's not you know fancy. It's not. No, it's, uh, it's very clean, um, and it's 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 like what I show people as a standard for how you edit very cleanly. Yeah, and so it's clean. You know, we rely on more of the story and and, and the content that's within it. Um, it's not flashy by any means, and so we've kind of used over the years have used the intro as kind of like all right, this is going to be our flashy kind of you know our our statement for for the for the show, and so that's kind of what we've, we've done over the years. And I'll tell you, like it, it is, it's funny. It's cool. It gets a lot of attention. A lot of people, you know, oh, I love this intro. It's my favorite one ever, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Uh, but it, I'll tell you what, it's, it's a lot of work. Oh, uh, yeah. every year coming up with a different concept. Like what, okay, now what are we going to do 12 I, years later? I can't imagine. Cool. Yeah. So. I mean, I think about that stuff too. You know, when you go into a new project and you're like, okay, what's going to be the graphic, you know, what's going to, I call it the graphic open, you know, what's yeah. going to be the open for this, you know, this project. And to try and do something different, like that, you know, the habits open. You know, we ended up spending a lot of money on it. It wasn't graphics, you know, but we did it with a uh, a Vulcan drone flying a red epic. And essentially, what it was was I wanted to do, and it was my idea, is I wanted to do an open that was all done in one shot, no cuts. And uh, you know, that's that's sounds really easy until you add the movement, the moving <laughs> parts. You know, essentially, you know, we have to find a look. We had to find the best pro shops to do it. You know, we had to line up how we we had to build a set for the bathroom that Chuck's going to be doing the toilet scene with. You know, the to- the the walls had to fall away. And then the the drone has to do the ex- you know the perfect shot because he's only got like eight minutes of fly time. So by the time he gets up, gets set, and we get everybody ready to go, and you know we get maybe two tries at this thing before he's got to land and put new batteries in. And you know, the first time we tried it, and I'll try and find the video of this, is we crashed a drone inside bass oh, no. pro oh yeah the vulcan drone with that red epic he it's crashed it like 30 like three feet from the side of a seventy-five thousand dollar bass boat 
and it hit the, <laughs> it hit the ground. It something shorted out, shot liquid solder all over the room, and all it was was that red. I just hear it crash to the ground from about twelve feet up, and the the sixteen to thirty five lens just goes rolling across the floor, and I'm like, oh my god, that was a rental. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it, it was just like that, that, that your heart sinks moment and, uh, ended up having to, you know, shoot, reshoot it. Well, it was like in August or September and we had to reshoot it again in October. And, uh, that guy had like 3000 flights with that drone and never crashed. And that we were the first ones and, oh and, it, and it wasn't even, it was nobody's fault. It was just a battery shorted out, but sure. it, you know, it's one of those things where it cost us thousands of dollars to get all those people there to line up, you know, Bass Pro to you know, essentially close off part of the store. And it was just a big rigmarole, but you know, it, it's one of those things where you try and do something different and cool. And then, you know, oh gosh, just things go wrong all the time. <laughs> yep. But uh, kind of, kind of sticking with that theme of how long you know how long it takes to do things and trying to do things differently. Do you have an idea of generally how much footage, or how many minutes or gigs or whatever it you guys normally shoot for one episode of television? It, you know, it kind of varies between between you know the episodes and which you know um, which episodes it is, but. Um, and also, we've gotten a lot more efficient. Oh gosh, I, yeah. I will say that. I mean, like I know when when we first started, before we really knew how we were going to do what we wanted, we knew what we wanted to do. We didn't know how, mm-hmm. and so we would set out and we'd say, okay, you know, we put together a shot list uh, uh, prior to the trip, and we would overshoot everything. We, would, oh, yeah. we were capturing everything, and because we wanted to have it, so when it came back time to sit down and put stuff together, we wanted to say, okay, we have it all. Um, since then, you know, like I said, we've, we've figured out it's a kind of, it's a well-oiled machine. We kind of know the right amount of stuff that we need, um, to get the episode that we need. So it kind of, it kind of varies. I mean, I would say, oh, man, this would be a better question for some of our, our, uh, editor guys, but, uh, you know, they, I would say like seven to 10 hours would yeah. be a low end, you know, yeah. episode. And then, and then, you know, north of 20 hours would be a higher end. Oh yeah, uh, episode. Um, but yeah, I just but, wanna, I want to put that in perspective for guys that are listening though, because that's generally what we used to do too. It was it was between seven to fifteen ish hours. It's kind of what we averaged on uh, you know per episode. So you're taking seven. So let's just say you're averaging ten hours of video for twenty two and a half minutes of content. So you know that's you know ten hours. It takes you know it take you you know a better part of two days just to watch it all, and yeah. then take that down and whittle it down into 22 minutes of a story that you're proud of, that you're happy with, that's going to air that, for people to consume. And then you got to do it 12 more times or, you know, mm-hmm. some case, some people's cases, 19 more times. Yep. So it's a, it's just, it's, it's a, it's a lot. It, it comes down to, comes down to what we said earlier. It, it's, it's work. Yeah. Yeah. I just got, uh, so the, the, the deer that I shot in Missouri last year, is a deer that we've had on our farm since we got it uh, back in 2012. And so we have all these years of history. So I've been, uh, the past week or so, been going through prior, you know, prior year hard drives and pulling out that footage and bringing it in. And so like that episode, for example, is going to have just a ton of content. Yeah. Um, and we'll have to decide how we want to lay it out and how well, we want to play it out. You know, and, we can't, and there'll we can't be a play lot, everything out. I was about to say, there'll be a lot of really good stuff that doesn't make it. Sure, and, exactly. And that's yeah. and that's one of the drawbacks of television, is yeah. you know you have to fit within the certain confines of, 
uh, you know, what the production guidelines are. You get a 30 minute slot and you have to, you have to have advertisers in there or you can't pay to do it. So it's, you know, that's, it's, uh, I know it's a much better, it's a much better problem to have is to have really good stuff hitting the cutting room floor versus the opposite, which is I don't have enough to make a good show. I'm going to have to stretch this. And I've had to do both and I would much rather have to make a hard decision on, man, this whole encounter is not going to be able to make it because I've got too much versus holy crap. I have used everything and I'm at 16 minutes of my timeline. I've got to manufacture, (laughs) I've got to manufacture six minutes in this timeline and I do not know how I'm going to do it. Um, and, and that's, and that's part of it, you know, and that's another reason I don't miss TV to be honest with you. (laughs) Um, yep. Yep. Yeah. There's definitely, you can got to kind of, Working the guidelines, but oh yeah, uh, the good the good news is like with our you know the stuff we do with our digital content and our social media stuff is there's always a home or place for if you have something that's good and compelling, there's always a always a spot for it. Oh so. yeah, and now we have social media, so we can always make a place for it. That's right. That's good. But uh, what kind of uh, as far as media storage goes, what kind of drives are you guys running? Uh, we've been running the G Raid drives. Um, primarily for the past no, eight years probably i'd say had good um, had good luck with those really good luck yeah so we we use the g-raid thunderbolt um i'm thinking the new one we just had to, we had to upgrade this past year um to the i want to say it is 24 terabytes mm-hmm. nice nice um, and cheap too you can go pick those yeah. up at your local walmart people yeah so they're yeah no they're 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 more expensive than, yeah. than others obviously but um you know, it's everything for us. Oh, Every, yeah. Everything that our business revolves around is on that one little hard drive. Yeah. So well, are two, you, I guess, technically. I was about <laughs> to say, are you, you know, what, what's kind of backup strategies are you guys running? Are you running any kind of RAID configurations or are you just kind of mirroring drives? We've, we've just been mirroring drives. Um, the, the the bigger G-RAID drives, the, the, the one that we have, the 24, I think it's, man, I don't want to misspeak, I think it's a 24 terabyte is the new biggest one. And uh, so it has, it has dual 12 terabyte uh drives inside so it'll run it'll back automatically back up internally but we like to have separate you know off-site backups so, oh yeah uh, just in case the office were to flood or burn down one day and then you're, everything's yeah. gone exactly yeah so we try to keep uh three different copies you know at least in in three different places at all times so yeah, one is none. it's a scary yeah, it's one a scary is, thing one is none two is one yeah exactly, exactly. What uh, um, what what uh, what gear are you guys editing off of? Are y'all PC, Mac? Uh, do you know? Well, we do everything on Mac, and yeah. now we're uh, we we're all converted over to Premiere Pro now. Um, that wasn't the case four four or five years ago. We were we were uh, all Final Cut Pro seven, um, and yep. obviously that kind of got abandoned with Final Cut Pro yep. uh, ten. Exactly so the same here, man. We we made all you know we all made this made the switch and. Um, obviously for the better, um, it's one of those deals. Once you get comfortable, you know, working in a, working in a, in a program, it's, it's hard to switch, but like with Adobe, with the way everything functions together and so fluidly and, um, with the, you know, new creative cloud side of things, like all the updates automatically and, um, you know, just everything's seamless with Adobe. So it's, it's nice. It's, it's seamless until they put out a new version of the program that's got, <laughs> it's really buggy and then you have to fight it because I've had to that's do true. that. That's true. I, yeah. I, I mean, I do like the automatic updates, but I don't like how 
sometimes they put out an automatic update and it's a super incredibly buggy thing. I had to get on the phone with Adobe the other day and they had to go through and fix mine because something in the preferences was jacking everything up. And uh, essentially I was sitting here staring at a, a spinning wheel most of the day and, you know, it's it's hard when you've got, you know, like you guys and have a bunch of content that you need to get out and your entire engine of creating that content is down and you can't get it to work. Time is money. Time is money. <laughs> exactly right. What is a uh, kind of, you know, it's talking about time, you know, how much, how long would it got, does it generally take, you know, your editors to do a single episode? You know, I, I generally set aside two weeks or when I was doing television around two weeks or 10 days to do one app. You know, is that generally around about the same time you guys are, are taking to do them or are you guys doing them quicker, longer? Um, as far as like, yeah, straight up, like literally post-production editing work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We like to allow about two weeks, you yep. know, per, per episode. Um, that doesn't include kind of the pre-pro of the, you know, of, of like laying everything out. Yep. Sean and I do all that. Yeah. Um, you know, once, once season's over, we get, we kind of sit down and say, okay, here's what we got. Um, you know, what's going to go into what we kind of line all that out and kind of storyboard everything. So, um, but yeah, from editing time, yeah, we like to allow you know, a couple weeks because I mean, you know, as an editor, um, you know, it's easy to get burned out. It's easy to get so deeply rooted with something that you just need to take a step back and, oh, yeah. and take a break. And so, um, you know, it's nice to have, you know, a couple of weeks per episode to where, okay, say if you hit a, you hit a block, you know, a point where you're just kind of stumped and you want to work on the next episode and start cutting it down and just kind of get a, get a break and you come back to it and you have a whole new fresh whole new different mindset you're like wow okay like now i can see how this flows how this might work how this might be able to piece together well that and it helps too with you guys i'm sure to having a a, a team of people that can have different sets of eyeballs on something too because that's something i really miss you know when i worked at sub seven and you know we were editing and i would go through something and i'd say hey so and so will you come in here and check this out and tell me what you think and they say hey i really like that i'm getting bored here you know, and, mm-hmm. you know, to have another set of eyes or another perspective to say, you know, because a lot of times you fall in love with something you're editing or you fall in love with a particular clip or an idea and you run with that and then you might love it, but the viewer might not or somebody else yeah. might see something you don't. And that's something that I miss now being on my own to where I don't have another set of eyes that can come in here and say, I love that, love that, hate that. So it, it's, it gets running into those walls happens, happens often. And I have to just get up and walk away from it. Just like you said. So I feel well, you. If you ever one. need an unbiased opinion, you just let me know. <laughs> oh, I'll, I will absolutely do that. Yeah. I need, I need somebody to uh, slap me around from time to time. Well, <laughs> no, that's I, I really do love that about editing is it's such a personal thing. And oh, for sure. Know, I, I could give the same project to, to three of our different guys and get three different results. And, um, you know, well, obviously the bones, you know, as long as you have the, the bones there and have everything you need, um, you know, it can be played out a million different ways. Yeah. Well, I, and I tell people a really good show or a really good project, 70% of that's how it was shot in the field, you yeah. know, because if you hand somebody crap and you expect to get Steven Spielberg out of the back, back end of it, it's not going to happen. You yeah, know, it's hard to polish a doctor. It really is. <laughs> you know, it is. And I, and I tell guys, if you don't know how to edit learn how to edit or at least learn the basics of it because that'll make you such a better, more efficient shooter to know what you need to get when you're in the field. Um, yeah. It'll make you, it'll save you money. It'll save you time. It'll make your editor love you a lot more. Yeah. Just, We've been polishing uh, Derek Leininger's turds for years. Man. Oh man. Gosh. <laughs> I got to get him on here. I was I'm talking just, to him this last I'm weekend. Just kidding. <laughs> uh, Derek, no, Derek's a great, great guy. Uh, 
he, he he's uh, one of the shooters for Lindsey Way. Oh yeah. Um, and uh, Kyle Kyle Carter is also one of the shooters, and uh, both of those guys are pre- you know previous film school uh, film school attendees. So good dudes, and uh, and uh, no, they do they do a great job. I just had to had to throw him under the bus. So I know he'll be listening. Oh, exactly. Well, that <laughs> that and they work for two of the you know just the awfulest people in the world. Oh yeah, man. Jeff and David seriously are just some of the most genuine, oh, super gosh. nice guys. I've like no, just Jeff great, and... just great humans. Just period. Sure. You take yeah. you take the TV show, take the take the all of that away. Just as like human beings, like the best people you'll ever meet. Yeah, yeah. No, I was I was kind of drawn drawn to those guys. You know, years ago, ran into each other at the Iowa Deer Classic, and just kind of kept in touch. And just super super good dudes that really just like like donuts a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they really do and that's Jeff, funny you know, you know we joke about like you know like jokingly like or not i mean we're seriously talking about like finding a niche and finding your own way and like it's so funny like but that is like you know the the Lindsay way that their show concept is you know their, their their niche is about the family the whole you know killing giant whitetails managing land but but where they where they've been able to like stand out and like separate themselves is is with snacks. With snacks. Like everybody's jumping on board of the snack train. And so oh, like, yeah. It's uh it's pretty cool. You never know what might be your well, what might be your calling. But you gotta think about it though, <laughs> it's so relatable. I've thought about it for years is like how could you capitalize that on a business? Because everybody stops at the gas station before they go hunting to yeah. get some sort of snack for the tree stand or they go by Walmart or somewhere and they grab a back pack of little Debbies. You know, and you know it's the same it was the same thing with a habit. We always used to talk about little Debbies. And uh and you know, little Debbie even reached out to us, you know, indirectly, and, you know, they, and they wanted to do something with the show, but they couldn't just because we aired on Sundays. And they're—I uh, can't remember what denomination they are, but they're like extremely religious. Um, and, and but it's just crazy because that's so relatable to people because everybody takes snacks, especially in November when you're sitting, you know, all day sits. Everybody's got snacks with them. That's right. Yeah, don't be surprised. If the Lindsay Way is presented by Krispy Kreme next year. Oh gosh, dude, that would be that would be the most glorious thing ever. I would I would ask for a job if that was. I wouldn't uh, be able to fit in the tree stand though after, after the end of it. Yeah, you got to have a metabolism like Jeff or like my my business partner Sean. Those I was guys. about to say like how does I mean I know I know he because I watch him eat those things on the show so I was like yeah, he, but he's a little guy I don't know how that happens. Yeah, you yeah. Know, he just genetically blessed. Wow. Yeah. Well, um, what's the, what do you think is the hardest part about running, you know, your own business, especially with really good friends? You know, what's been some of the hardest things about, you know, whether that's growing pains or being in business with really good friends, you know, what's been some of the hard things that you've, uh, had to deal with? Man, I'm trying to think, um, you know, I, I think like the hardest part is, is finding people, like I said, that are in it for the right reasons. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of people have this assumption of, of television or the hunting industry or, you know, the, 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 the infamy, the fame part of side of things. It's like people think that you're, you're on TV. Oh, you're making millions and there's lots of money. And there's just, there isn't, there isn't, it's, like I said, it's a passion sport. There's just not a ton of, of money in the sport. And so, um, I, I, I'd like to say, you know, most people that are involved in the industry, um, you know, could be, could be making more doing, doing something else. And so, no doubt. yeah, um, that's part of the beauty of it though. Really. I mean, people are involved because they want to be, but that being said, there's a lot of people that are in it for the wrong reasons and, uh, you, you gotta have those people that are in it for the right reasons. And so that's been, you know, always an ongoing challenge is, fi- you know, finding the right people to work with and managing the relationships, um, I, I love that side of things. You know, we do, you know, our, our you call, them, call them what you will, but sponsors, partners, whatever, like 
the the most of our our partners have been with us for years and we've created relationships with those people that are there at the companies and um friendships you know and so uh, you know i've been able to meet some some incredible people throughout the industry because of because of what we do and so i kind of strayed off the <laughs> the question from the hard the hard things but i think you know finding the right people that are that are in it and um you know working with friends is is uh, awesome i think i mean I, I really really love it and enjoy it and sean and i have uh, our personalities um, really mesh well. And so we've been able to, I mean, we lived together in college and so uh, we've been able to put up with each other for a long time. So, uh, you know, it, it's, it's fun. Uh, it's a lot of fun and I wouldn't change it for the world for sure. Well, uh, what's, what's some, uh, what's some of the big plans or big hunts or some things coming up for 2019? What have you got planned? I know you guys will be hunting in Kansas and Missouri this year. So what else, sure. what else you got? Sure. So, uh, Sean and I actually just found out that we, uh, we put in together, we both drew, uh, mountain goat tags on Kodiak Island. Oh, so, wow. um, I've never, and Sean, neither one of us have ever been big on the mountain goats or the sheep hunts. Um, you know, it's just, it's just a different thing. And like, uh, I don't know, it's one of those things I know I'm going to love it and I know it's going to be exciting. So like, I, like since we pulled the tag, I'm like, I'm like really, really jacked up to try it and I'm all for doing new adventures. So um, that'll be exciting, exciting for us. And, um, and then, uh, Sean, I believe is going to be doing a, uh, a moose hunt this year too, which is kind of a, kind of a different kind of a bucket list hunt for him. So I think Skyler is the only one on our crew that's, ki- that's killed a moose and it's been several, several years now. So, um, those, uh, those two hunts are going to be kind of, kind of unique and up and coming. So that's awesome. Yeah. That's gonna That one's going to be tough, uh, which I did, which I watched your, uh, your brown bear hunt last year um yeah and that was i did a brown bear hunt t- 2017 i filmed one i didn't hunt but um I, it wasn't for me i didn't like it um the way that you guys did it was was pretty cool i didn't like looking over my shoulder the whole time <laughs> which <laughs> it looked like you guys had a lot better uh weather than we did uh we saw yeah. the sun i think once in 15 days yeah, it I was, remember you it was to you about that. miserable, and I don't ever, I don't ever care about doing it again. I did the brown bear thing. I can say I did it. Don't care to ever do it again. Um, <laughs> it's uh yeah, it's a, uh, it's an interesting hunt. I mean, it's it's a patience deal. I mean, we sat, um, you know, springtime, seventeen hour days, and you're not moving around much because the 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 they can smell so incredibly oh well. Gosh, so, yeah. you know, we would hike up to our glassing knob every day. And I shot my bear on the twelfth day, so yeah. eleven straight days of glassing and glassing and glassing and glassing and glassing. It's it's a extremely slow and extremely mentally excruciating hunt. Um, you know, especially when you know you're getting down to the wire. It's a it's a fourteen day tag, I think it was. Um, and so your tag is good for fourteen days, and so it was one of those deals where that that was you know it's not a hunt you get to do every year, um, and so. You know, it's 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 kind of a once in a lifetime, or you know, once in a very, very few <laughs> uh, opportunity uh, hunt, and so um, it was interesting. But it went from you know slow and excruciating and mentally tough to one of the most exhilarating and and uh, drilling rushes you could ever ask for in oh, about yeah. ten seconds. So, yeah, you, yeah, it got yeah, it got real real quick on yeah. your hunt. Yeah, yeah, I shot him. I shot that bear. Uh, 12 yards we called him in and he came in and just came directly at us and it was a uh it was uncomfortable is what i like to say yeah <laughs> uncomfortable that's yeah that's an understatement yeah we did uh yeah ours was in the fall 
And okay. uh, we didn't do any glassing. We were right there on the coast, um, right outside, uh, about 80 miles from Cordova. And we would go out, you know, pre-dawn every morning, and most of the bears were out there feeding on salmon, and they would go back in the willows. And you wouldn't, see, you would have about a 10-minute window, um, you know, right there after first light. And, uh, you know, we saw bears about every morning, and then the fifth morning, we ended up shooting a really big bear going back to the willows. We actually got in between him on his way back and shot him. And then we had 10 more days for another guy. I was there with two people. And we had 10, oh, okay. 10 more days um, to uh, to hunt, and it just got bad. We didn't see anything in the mornings. We would spend all day dragging a boat upriver, sitting on a kill site, you know, standing on our feet on the side of a riverbank, like for 12 hours straight in the, you know, just the pissing rain. And I'm like, this, dude, this, I don't know. I don't know if there's anything worth this. This is bad. You know, and, <laughs> yeah. it, and it was just, it just progressively got worse. You know, I remember one day, it's the only time in my career I've ever had to tell a, a client that I'm not taking my camera gear out in this. <laughs> it was blowing sustained like 40 miles an hour with 70 mile an hour gusts and like raining sideways. And uh, I'm like, I told him, I was like, there's just no way I can keep my gear from not getting zapped in this. I was like, there's just no, there's no, I was like, if I took it out to film something, it's done. So I was like, there's no point in me even taking it. Um, and uh, I remember they went out for about 10 minutes, <laughs> turned right back around and came back to camp that day. So, um, yeah. And I just knew we were about to get blown across the tundra in our little hut every night. It was just, oh dude, it was bad. It's funny. There's some, like something deep inside of me that gets a little bit of like joy from really like <laughs> really excruciating experiences. See, and I don't know. <laughs> and maybe, and maybe that's why I haven't really, I didn't really appreciate that much. It's just because I have, uh, I've been super fortunate to where, and all the hunts I've done, there's probably only been three or four of them that has been just, just bad, just brutal. Yeah. Um, weather wise, the rest of, I mean, I've done a lot of physical hunts, you know, between elk hunts and stuff like that. But as far as just brutal weather, I've been really lucky in terms of that. Yeah. Alaska is just pretty typical. Yeah. That was brutal. the first, that was the first time I'd ever been to Alaska. So that's probably why it was so brutal. Yeah. We were there like into September and October. And he's like, usually we're out of here by October one. And we left like October the 5th and it was, it was getting serious by the time we left. Yeah. Yeah. We actually, yeah, we, we did get really fortunate on our, on our bear hunt with the weather. I mean, like it's not usually sunny. It's usually cloudy, foggy, rainy, you know, nasty, nasty bears love that nasty weather. Yeah. And that's what they kept telling us. I'm like, they must really like it because there's no way anything's out in this right now. Yeah. That's the first bear I ever shot though. Really? Never even, never even been on a black bear hunt. So. See? Yeah. I'd never done a, I'd never done a bear hunt until this last year and I ended up doing three back to back to back. Okay. So it's yeah. just like a. You know, or well, that that brown bear hunt, and then I did three black bear hunts this last year. So yeah, I got my fill of bears the last two years. There you go. But uh, dude, I really appreciate you coming on, taking the time. I think we've been we've been talking almost yeah, almost an hour and fifteen minutes. So uh, I uh, I appreciate you coming on, talking to me. Where can uh, where can everybody find you guys on social and um, you know, air times for the show and all that good stuff. Yeah, no, we're we're everywhere. Um, you know, the air times and everything on our website. Obviously, we're on uh. Facebook and Instagram at Heartland Bow Hunter, and I uh, just want to give a quick quick mention of our film school that we're putting on this summer. Um, it's July, I believe, fourteenth and fifteenth this year. So we've been we've been uh, putting on this film school. I want to say eight or nine years now, 
and um, it's it's pretty cool. We get a lot of people from basically all over the all over the United States and actually beyond, and um, you know they kind of come in and 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 people that are interested in learning more about filming hunts. And we've had a pretty cool variety of, of people, you know, anywhere from you know a uh, father son duo that um, you know the dad's just wanting to get you know, get a camera to start filming hunts for fun for, you know, for their family to kind of create memories with a son. And we've had guys that, uh, you know, do what you do for a living and film, you know, film professionally in the hunting industry and produce in the hunting industry that are just wanting to kind of get better and kind of learn more, learn more stuff. And so, um, it's always a fun weekend that we kind of get together and, and, uh, have a bunch of like-minded people in, in the same place. And it's always, uh, always exciting. So, yeah, I know um, some. I know some guys that have been, and they said that you know the class was awesome. But if nothing else, just going to network. You know, they exactly. met so many guys networking yeah. there. That was that was awesome. So, well, yeah, like I mentioned earlier, Derek and Kyle, both that work for the Lindsay Way, they uh, both previously were previous attendees. Um, Jamie Lovett, one of the guys that, that came years ago, was uh, is one of the producers for the Buck Commander guys. Um, and we've had guys from um, you know from Mike Stroff's show, Savage Outdoors. Um, man, there's a lot of people that have gone on and, and like, um, you know, people that have, have, have gone on to do their own thing and, and not necessarily, you know, work for another show or another brand, um, do their own thing. So one of our, one of our, uh, students, Drew Seals, um, who's from a couple of years ago, stupid, he's, uh, he's putting talented. out some really good stuff. Holy yeah. crap. He's so talented. I have had him on the podcast. He's, he's dumb, dumb, talented for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny. It's pretty cool to see the people like, like, like him and, um, Brian Dryden, another producer that worked on the on the Lindsay Way, like those guys. Also, like seeing them, seeing them come in, stupid, talented, yes, yeah, and like seeing seeing them come in and like you know the drive, the passion is there, and then like after the class, just kind of keeping in touch with them and seeing what they do, and like, I mean, they just go all in, and like yeah. those are the guys that that the guys that go all in are the ones that end up you know, you know, being successful. And yeah. I think, and they're the guys um, that are still around, they're still doing it. They're going to be the next generation of outdoor content. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And it's like, you know, only so much can be learned, obviously, from a certain standpoint, I feel like you got to have the eye and you got to have the the ability deep down inside. Um, But, you know, we, we meet enough people, you know, through the course every year that there's always a few that really, really take off and do well. So it's a pretty cool experience. Well, Mike, dude, I truly appreciate it. Wish you guys all the best of luck. Tell uh, Sean and the rest of the crew that I said hello and uh, I will. Um, hopefully, we run into each other this fall. But I'm sure, if nothing else, I'll run into you. Hopefully, before ATA next year. Usually, when I get to see you every year. But uh, hopefully, yeah. before then. Absolutely, man. Yeah, keep in touch. And uh, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. <laughs>